race is on, but it's going to be off for Honda in Formula One at the end of 2021 with a bombshell announcement on Friday morning that its partnership with Red Bull's teams will end. It's a big blow, not just to Red Bull, but the whole of Formula One, and the implications are wide-ranging. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss all things Honda are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, Scott, hello. First up, uh, you've had a great relationship with those at Honda over the years, so it's it's a real shame, isn't it, to know that they'll never be able to realise the full potential of this uh, of this programme. Yeah, I, I've seen... Uh, I mean, I, I came into Formula One... Uh, once they'd hit rock bottom, so so they'd had the three dismal seasons with McLaren, and then I had the uh, the opportunity to to cover their 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 renaissance, really their revival season with Toro Rosso, and then the through to the first win with 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 Red Bull, and then how expectations grew, and this season's been a bit of a disappointment, but it has been a really really interesting three seasons covering the sort of second half of this uh, this Formula One spell and. I know speaking to, to to a couple of people um in in the aftermath of the announcement just this is because this come as such a body blow it's taken the wind right out of uh some of the people involved in 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 the project and it is such a shame there's been a lot of um a lot of money spent obviously from Honda itself but a lot of effort and a lot of uh manpower put in a lot of a lot of hours spent working uh trying to make 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 what was such a f- fundamentally flawed project into a race winning project again and the fact that the fact that this big opportunity to finally put it all together or see if they can actually finally put it all together seeing that taken out of their hands it on a human level and a sporting level is quite painful to see yeah it's always important to remember when there's things like this there's lots of human beings and lives behind this isn't it and even if those involved can be redeployed elsewhere in honda as as the project winds down it's just a, a real shame that all that effort just uh, feels like it goes to waste so that there is a, a human cost. And uh, Mark, obviously it was only 12 or so years ago we were both covering the news that Honda was pulling out of F1 last time round. But it's strange, isn't it? These moments never cease to have a big impact, no matter how often they happen or how kind of predictable they are in general. It's never a surprise when a manufacturer goes, but when they announce it, it's always it's always kind of a big gut punch, isn't it? Yes, because they're, they're a big part of the structure. So, you know, you've only got... Four engine manufacturers, soon to be three, um, and spread between ten cars. So if one of them pulls out, obviously it's a big, you know, big, big scar, a big gap that it leaves. And um, when it comes at short notice like this, it's it's always a bit of a shock. The the timing was the shock more actually than the the, the, the event of it happening because it had been speculated about really when. Uh, in November, around Singapore time last year, they announced they were extending their deal, which at the time ended in 2020, end of 2020. But they only extended it by one year, and it was it was spun as a positive thing. But it, it raised the inevitable question of why only one year? What happens after the end of 21? And I think it was still it hadn't been decided at that point, as far as I understand. But it was there were two factions within the company, and, and one of them was to to end at the, at the end of that period. Um, but yeah, it does. It, it, it it's never a nice thing, um, especially with the the competitive field the way it is at the moment, with how dominant Mercedes is and Honda being the nearest thing there is to some competition for them. Um, it, it just gives um, just gives a, a bit of a, a sinking feeling. Yeah. Well, and obviously, as you alluded to there, there's there's always factions within these companies, and it's it's a broader decision. So, Scott, 
we should probably start off with with what they laid out as their reasons. We all participated, well, we all attended virtually, we should say, the, the press conference that Honda had uh, this morning about it. So can you just outline the reasons Honda gave for its withdrawal from F1 at the end of next year? Yeah, so in this 50-minute uh, press conference um, that Honda, uh, Honda basically stuck to one underlying key principle, which is uh, as a company they are setting very bold and what they consider to be essential targets on the automotive side uh, to be uh, to be carbon neutral as a company by 2050 and as a sort of uh, line in the sand or a, a checkpoint they need to reach to get to that to that mark in 2050 they need to be achieving two-thirds of their car sales need to be electric vehicles um, or electrified vehicles so I presume that means plug-in hybrids as well as full-on electric cars but two-thirds of their sales being electrified by 2030 which obviously isn't that far away uh so basically what honda's saying is to achieve that they need the full might of the honda organization behind that goal and that includes the that includes the the knowledge uh the infrastructure and the finances that are currently being drained by the F1 operation at Sakura uh, and the other sort of like ancillary components within that that organisation. So obviously what Honda are doing in the UK as well. Um, they need all of that redirected to achieve this goal and they, they would not veer from that as being their underlying reason. To, to their credit, they're not using the coronavirus pandemic to, to, to hide behind it. I've, we've seen that before, haven't we? Um, not necessarily with the COVID-19 situation, but in other other times it's it's quite convenient to gla- to, to 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 blame uh, sort of an external variable for, rather than the actual reason that you that you want to uh, to want to continue so it's not a sporting thing it's not that they're they're not hiding behind underperformance they're not saying it's been a waste of money they're not saying it's because of covid it's because their priorities as a company have shifted and and they simply cannot fund and deploy all of their resources in f1 if they want to achieve what they consider to be uh i think they call it like a once in 100 years great transformation so it's, it's a pretty pretty big deal and i think sort of fundamentally they seem pretty sensible justification as, lo- as long as obviously it's true <laughs> yeah i think it certainly holds water because obviously they had an ample opportunity to walk away from f1 a few years ago when it was going terribly and you'd think that if it was just uh a question if they didn't think they were doing quite well enough, they'd have gone there. And obviously, it's still a, a big financial spend, so it's, it's a factor potentially as well. What, what do you make of it, Mark? Do you do you buy their official uh, reasoning for it? Yes, I do. Um, I think they feel that they, their long-term existence is dependent upon them coming up with um, solutions to the technical challenges that um, that they have identified, and they do believe they need to be that every every everyone in this um, sector of industry needs to be carbon neutral by that date and they think they won't have a uh, a future if they don't and it it, it 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 requires a huge investment in R&D because we're nowhere near being able to to do that yet um and of obviously um, that's massive expenditure and it's also massive use of um 
human resources and the, the, the best, brightest people very often end up on the F1 programs in these, in these companies and it, it, it obviously is what they want to redeploy some of those brains and um, some of the money and to this what they identify as their new challenge. So there's two things, there's, there's the, the marketing impact and there's the um, R&D um, the, the alignment with, with the sport and they're they are the two. They're always the two justifications of a manufacturer doing Formula One marketing and R and D, and it just feels as though neither of them are really on message uh, for Honda's aims, um, and it, it tallies um, precisely that they they would be thinking of um, knocking it on the head because I don't think they they would have felt comfortable pulling out. Say after the, the the McLaren period, when when they um, had a disastrous first three years, because they a company full of pride in their engineering, and they would have been um, absolutely determined to crack the challenge before even thinking about pulling out. But they can at least now say we've um, we've achieved multiple victories, and you know who knows they, they may even put a, a title campaign together next year, the final year, but. You, you can you can no longer accuse them of pulling out from because it's proved too difficult. They they've actually you know got around what was they came in a very low starting point. They came in late and to 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 be achieving victories at, at all uh, shows that they were um, they were on top of the challenge ultimately. So yeah, I, I believe that this is the, the reason that they're given. I I believe it's been a long it's been a long sort of decision making process for them. I think it was a. A few months ago, in sort of around springtime, they set up a new center within their R and D department at, at Honda, which was devoted to to looking into new um, engine technologies, but also new energies uh, as well. But then it wasn't until August that this manifested itself in communicating to Red Bull that the F one program might come to an end. And then I think it was only a few days ago that they actually fully committed to the decision to end their participation at the end of 2021 so it's been a i think it's been a difficult and and really serious decision for honda to make because because they always talk about motorsport being in their dna and they really didn't want to leave f1 with their tails between their legs so i think in an ideal world they would have wanted to try and find a way to rationalize what they want to achieve on the automotive side and keeping their f1 ambitions alive but ultimately you're talking about the um future-proofing the, the the company and, and what the company wants to achieve so in that situation f1 unfortunately has to be the thing that they sacrifice and no matter how much a part of its dna it is this is the fourth time they've pulled out of formula one over over the decades isn't it so it's always one of those things that can happen with with any manufacturer but the whole question about the wider automotive landscape sometimes we can be guilty in formula one of looking at it purely from an f1 perspective but obviously F1's a kind of tangential part of a far wider automotive industry. And there's the questions of, you know, the, the more green technology, mass transportation is the future of that is a, a huge, a huge question. So this whole thing about addressing and investing in the solutions to these problems, it, it's not trivial, isn't it? It's, it's an interesting thing because it, it reminded me that um, I know someone who, who'd been conducting some entry interviews for engineering at, at a university and said that in recent years, the proportion of people saying they want to go into Formula One that are studying, say, engineering to do that has dropped a lot. But the number you've talked about, green technologies, et cetera, has risen dramatically because any kind of engineer 
will rise to the challenges of their era, won't they? So that that kind of shows where the central focus is. And I guess, well, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about the wider F1 implications later, but that's the big thing, isn't it, Mark? That we've got such an uncertain path in the wider world and Formula One isn't a central part of that path. That This sort of thing is inevitable, isn't it? Yes, and it's not clear yet where F1 will fit in because it's not clear yet what the ultimate solutions are. Obviously, electrification is part of it, but at the moment, you know, the, the technology is, isn't enough to make F1 anything like fast enough. Um, so that's not a route that F1 could follow at the moment to, to bring it sort of online with the, the R&D. Um, so it's... I, I think probably there's going to have to be an interim period where uh, F1 just has to sort of straddle a, the the line between um, you know fuel burning engines and and whatever comes in the future, whether it's hydrogen fuel cells, electric, some combination of them all. Um, and probably the first step of doing that is going to be the synth- synthetic fuels, which um, will be introduced probably in 22. So, yeah, um, I think. Formula One it can exist without manufacturers and has done it. it it's flourished without manufacturers um, in the, in the period from sort of uh, late fifties to um, mid seventies and and beyond. But um, it, it it's structured around manufacturers at the moment and in terms of its sizing and the whole scope of it really. So it's a very very difficult transition because you know it, it's gone through these periods of existing first on. Um, tobacco money and, and alcohol and you know the, the, as those things were, were turned down the manufacturers were just ramping up their investment and it, they, they ended up putting in 10 times as much as any of the tobacco companies ever had and so everything became um, sort of a, the whole scale of F1 just, just ramped up so fast sort of between I guess mid 90s to you know mid 2000s and it, it, it's it, Formula One finds itself in that problem of downscaling because of the challenges of the economy, etc. But it's also now having to um, look at how to structure itself around a, a possibly uh, automotive-less future. And I think we we're talking about we, you know, the, there are three manufacturers in once Honda goes, but that's an assumption that Mercedes remains. There's, there's no guarantee that it does so. Um, Renault has announced it, it is staying, but even it has rebranded to Alpine, so that even you, you may you might suspect that that's to do with sort of camouflaging its its presence in F1 almost in, in, in a marketing sense, and because I think such cars as the the, the, the Alpine, the little, little sports car that Renault make, I think it'll just be things like those, you know, not that, probably by 2030, that, that time frame that Scott was referring to earlier, Things like that will will be the only things using petrol burning engines, just little niche sporting cars, and then then your your brand will fit into Formula One. But it's a much smaller brand and based around much smaller numbers. So yeah, I think it, this is all pointing towards Formula One downscaling its its cost base. But I don't I don't think that necessarily means that its um, its its appeal will reduce. If if anything, it um, it may it may help enhance its appeal. So you could have a situation where whereby its um, it, it its its popularity actually increases. But it, I mean, this is looking long term. This is looking 
three, four, five more years down the line. But it, it, it is the direction suggested by this pullout. It's such a complicated picture in the wider sense, isn't it? Because there's also the whole question of of driving as a phenomenon, isn't there? Because we're starting to move towards autonomous cars, uh, etc., and the the potential life saved by that and the advantages in infrastructure and mass transport, etc., are massive. So who knows down the longer term path how long kind of driving as a thing everyone does is essentially understood thing, shall we say. It's only obviously been a thing for... Uh, as long as the car's been around, really, hasn't it? So it's it's not kind of inviolable. So th- this is the thing, isn't it, Scott? Because we talk about where F1's engine rules are, and there's this kind of, well, it should either go a bit more regressive or it should future-proof itself. But I think, as Mark alluded to, it can't entirely future-proof itself because the, fu- the future path is so... There's so many potential directions for it to go, and even the solutions we've got now, people say, well, okay, go to you know battery-based electric vehicles. But even that's got serious problems in terms of you know, the amount of batteries that are getting through, the lithium mining, etc. So it's actually hugely, hugely complicated. And I guess this is kind of the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, for F1 in terms of taking on all of these challenges? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I spoke to um, I spoke to a couple of high-ranking FIA people um, a few months ago, actually, during the hiatus about what they're planning for sort of 2026 and how exactly they go about um, keeping on top of what the latest trends are and and where they think they need to direct their own technologies and it is quite fascinating because they you know they 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 employ um like university uh, research projects and uh, scientific laboratory projects and all and all sorts of things to try and keep up with, with, with stuff we know that they're they the FIA seems really firmly committed to um sustainable fuels and sort of more sustainable engine technology in general f1's going to move further down that that direction but it is really difficult to work out exactly what their compromise is because i do think it's also sometimes a little bit too simplistic when people say f1 should wean themselves off of engine manufacturers and maybe it needs to become sort of like a a sort of niche playground for, for for sort of old school technology but somewhere down the line someone has to produce this technology and if that technology is not relevant anymore, if it cannot be produced properly anymore, then it doesn't. It's not going to serve a purpose for the for the pinnacle of motorsport, is it? So, it is. It is really difficult. I think it's. Um, I think it's going to cause. I think this specific announcement from Honda is going to prompt a bit of soul searching because this is all going on in the background anyway, and now it's been thrust into the foreground because you're losing the most recent addition to the grid from an an engine manufacturer point of view, it would be the team equivalent of losing Haas. You're looking at it and going, well, hang on a second, this uh, ecosystem can't be right if the most recent person to join has now had to back out. So serious, serious questions that F1 will, I'm sure, already be asking itself. Yeah, and obviously there's there's been all uh, the work done with the Concord Agreement to, and, the, and the actions to take on the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, which we've quite justifiably said have been a big positive. But this is kind of the, the next problem, isn't it? It's it's the real world invading. But that that whole question about whether you make it a niche thing, etc., is really it's really difficult because there's always been that tension, hasn't there, in terms of the relationship between all of motorsport, in particular Formula One, in recent years and automotive manufacturers. And yeah, you do need them, but you don't need them to be the the be all and end all, which is fundamentally creating this sort of tension, isn't it? But that 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 question about how how you keep it kind of relevant and the extent to which you need to keep it relevant is really really difficult to answer and i think you could you could ask you know 
two dozen of the most informed people about both Formula One and this technology, and you'll probably get two dozen slightly different variations of the of, of the same answer. But I guess if we're looking at the the shorter term, the next generation of engine regulations, which should be twenty six, shouldn't it? Um, that's obviously the next point, but that's that's really a bit too early, isn't it, Mark, for us to have a clear idea of a direction? So that needs to be kind of a a step of some sort. But it, it, we can't re- they can't reinvent the engine wheel, as it were, in 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 that time frame. So we just don't know what the right direction is. Yeah, and then if you're talking about a twenty twenty six reduction, you, you you're talking about doing the research now, um, you know, choosing a direction and making making sure you can make it happen. So. Yeah, very, very tricky. So um, I suspect we may end up with some sort of um, synthetic fuel burning smaller engine if, if we're looking ahead to 2026, 20, um, possibly possibly two-stroke, as, as it had been, um, I think it was Pat Simmons who was first talked about his preference and that he was talking about you know, something like a 700, 750 horsepower, one liter turbo, three cylinder screaming two stroke, which you could, you, you could say it's okay. It's not particularly relevant to um, a mainstream automotive, but uh, there are probably research and development parallels there. That, that in, in, if you're talking in terms of automotive, um, looking at a, a mix of technologies for the future, because that seems to be the, the one thing that seems to be. Uh, certain is that the there is not one one technology answer. The the the, the ultimate answer, if, if we if we look twenty or thirty years down the line, the reality is that probably it's, it's going to be a mix of um, different technologies according to to the usage and um, the, even what the what the car um, ownership um, pattern is 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 not even defined whether whether people will still buy and own cars as, or as a matter of pride or whether, whether they just um dial a destination on a on a phone and a, a car arrives and drops them off it it, it 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 all these things are up in the air so yeah i think um the the next engine formula if if, if they don't just extend this one a little bit longer i think the next engine formula won't be the defining answer it'll it'll be a an in between point um just in, in in formula one's evolution yeah i guess that's going to be what the the next few years are going to be about aren't they certainly that's the next phase of challenges to 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 get through the the discussions over these rules and you know we talk about 26 as the aim but these engine rules have been discussed at length and then deferred before haven't they so we may yet see a, a delay on on that sort of thing as they try and work things out and then i guess it comes down to whether they want to use that to try and encourage new manufacturers in i think that's the main thing isn't it scott because whatever happens having three engine suppliers to supply 10 teams is not ideal is it because you're then at a point where you're at the mercy of somebody pulling out or ceasing operation which can cause some significant problems which which is all part of the sort of sensitivity of negotiations and sort of exactly what you try to achieve and what you try to avoid in terms of um, loading up uh, the teams in one direction. But if you look at the way the grid is uh, comprised now in terms of engine manufacturers, so what happened? What would happen if tomorrow Mercedes turned around and said that they were withdrawing from Formula One as an engine supplier at the end? I'm sure they've obviously got their long-term individual arrangements with their respective customers, but what, are they going to supply four teams on the grid next year? And this is the danger. Like you, you get into a position where it becomes such an exclusive group of 
supplying engine manufacturers. We're in a position now where I don't think F1's got a new engine manufacturer coming in probably for at least six years when there's an, another set of engine regulations. So it, it, it is a, it is very sensitive. And the, the, the problem is that the... I, I don't know when... When has there ever been a time in F1 history? You, you, Ed, you're probably better placed to to, to answer this the, the, than I am, or, or or you, Mark. When has there ever been a time in F1 history where the where, where there was no not necessarily independent manu, man, engine manufacturer representation representation at all? But has there ever been any prolonged independent engine manufacturer absence, or is this a first in F1 history to? to have four big manufacturers soon to be free and no indies in sight. Yeah, it's it's there've been the odd period for example when uh when Cosworth was absent for a few years before this current absence when it was quite heavily manufacturer dependent but yeah that there is an over reliance. I don't think there's ever quite been a point where not only would it have been only three manufacturers, but so difficult to lay your hands on an engine because there were times in far, far earlier in the World Championship where at least the engines were, shall we say, engines, by which I mean you could go and find yourself a base engine and do something with it and produce something that was halfway uh, okay for Formula One. You can't really do that now. It's not an off-the-shelf type thing. So, yeah, it, it is a rather perilous situation. And I guess that has to be the number one objective. Whatever the, the future direction is, there needs to be a, a a guaranteed engine supply. And I guess as well, Mark, they're going to probably think of that thorny issue about whether they need a standard engine as well. If we remember, there was there was a set of rules once issued with the Cosworth standard uh, engines, wasn't there, uh, by Max Mosey. I know that's part of a bit of a political power play, but it's all of those things will be at least vaguely considered, shall we say, because at least that's a way of stabilising and controlling the situation. But I don't think any of us would be very keen on that. Yeah, it's one of the many um, pull, pulls and counterpulls, and for which there's probably no satisfactory re- resolution. Yeah, there was talk of the FIA doing a a modal engine about ten years ago, wasn't there? And um, that was going to be the basis for not just F1, but you know, endurance and rallying and all sorts of other things. And you just vary it according to the, the demands of that particular category. But um, the the, the Part of the the DNA of F1 has always been technological competition, um, and that's you know you, you're making a standard component out of the heart, the very heart of the technology. It, it, it's not satisfactory, but it would serve a it would serve a function. But it, it's you know I think as Formula One tries to find its place in this ever ever faster changing world. It may need to make a choice of, of of whether it it can afford to keep that, whether it goes ruthless with the cost controls and opens out the technology, which is one way of of doing it, or, or whether it does the opposite and just actually defines what the technology is, and you can't um, you can't, can't go adrift from that. So, yeah, lots it lots of. Um, Lots of decisions for F1 to have to make, and this, as Scott said earlier on, the, the, this pullout has just put it into the foreground. Um, these questions that are running around in the in the background the whole time, and, and uh, there, there's no ready answer yet. Um, but uh, there are a lot of um, 
very well-defined questions that Liberty and FIA are um, considering. I think uh, I think they have to consider a, a a spec engine, not necessarily imminently, but somewhere in the near future. Because, um, as Mark said, I I agree. I accept that its uh, engine competition is a fundamental part of what F one is and always has been. But um, and it is obviously one of the long-standing elements of that, as is teams designing their own car, which is another issue that cropped up this year. But DNA is no good if it's uh, DNA of a, an extinct being, is it? So um, if if it comes down to the only way to safeguard this championship's future is to have a, a supply engine or a much more basic engine with a couple of um, smaller organizations or companies behind it, then I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be against that on just purely on the grounds that it's better than it's better than F1 feeling it has to die a noble death, you know, having to um, persevere as long as possible. And then if it can't operate as a, as an engine com- competition as well as a car competition, then, then it, then it has no purpose and, and, and therefore it ceases. Uh, there, there's got to be, some kind of middle ground between those. I'm sure that's what Formula One and the FIA will be aiming for. But I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not totally convinced that it needs to be. It needs to remain an engine formula. I think the complexities of the world that Formula One lives in now, and will continue to be a part of, is such that I, I think that that side of competition might need to be phased out. And I also don't think. After very long at all, anyone would really care because I don't really think that many people, or I don't, I certainly don't think the majority of F1's audience base tunes in to see the engine competition. I think they like the fact that it's attached to it and it's part of the package, but I didn't take less joy in Alpha Tauri winning at Monza because that wasn't Alpha Tauri designing that engine, you know? I it, it was part of the story because it was a Honda engine and not a Mercedes it's and that's fine, but I really I really think it's the team and the teams and the drivers that you identify with, not the engine manufacturers themselves and all of the teams don't design their own engines. Um people talk really really positively of the of obviously of the Cosworth DFE era and if we got back to a point where there was one dominant engine across the grid and there were loads of different teams competing at the front as a result, you imagine if you had Mercedes, Red Bull, McLaren and Williams all designing good quality cars, but they all had the Mercedes engine in the back, that'd be a great battle. I don't think that would necessarily diminish the the spectacle. I don't think it would diminish the sporting integrity of the championship. So maybe... Now that we've we're just so clearly in a world where engine manufacturers cannot be cannot be trusted or cannot be enticed or whatever you want to however we want to put it into joining F1 and funding these complex expensive programs, maybe we are at the tipping point where standard engines or simpler engines are, they have to be the way that F1 goes. Yeah, I think that's that's the the the, the, the crux of the choice. I think because if you um, if you standardize the technology too much, you turn away the manufacturers. But then if you, the manufacturers are turning away anyway, uh, you don't want to be dependent upon them. So, yes, you, 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 that, that, if anything, that's what's going to drive the sport towards a, some sort of standardized power unit. But it's, it's quite ironic that it's in following 
the manufacturer's wishes with the, this current engine, the hybrid, that we've got this situation where the engines are so complex that we can't get any manufacturers in, any new manufacturers in, um, because it's the, the technology is so complex, and that's why it took Honda so long to become competitive as well. So yeah, it, it, there are there are always um, going to be difficulties in trying to align two different uh, sets of um, requirements and and um, ambitions in from in terms of the manufacturers on the one side and the sport on the other yeah some very complicated questions for f1 to answer there and whatever happens i think they need to take a pragmatic view to whatever is done i'd certainly agree with with scott that you can't just make that the, the rather lazy dna arguments uh that's often used as an argument against say a common engine i, I wouldn't use because you know what is evolution? One of the one of the driving forces behind evolution can be DNA changing and mutating, can't it? So, uh, you know, Formula One needs to evolve. There's no doubt about that. Let's have a little bit of a look at some of the uh, more detailed knock-on effects. Scott, various options for Red Bull now in terms of engines. I'd say either that's a deal with one of the three suppliers that exist. So that's most likely Renault for reasons I imagine you explain. Some kind of Red Bull engine project, I guess, is is possible. Or the one I quite like, which is uh, Honda continuing to produce the the engines, but bankrolled by Red Bull, kind of a bit like a modern day version of the Tag Porsche model uh, that McLaren used in the mid eighties. But uh, we have no idea if Honda would go for that. But what, what do you think is most likely now, and how close will that be to the ideal for Red Bull? Uh, I don't think the I, I don't think the most likely and the 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 most preferred options are, are, are the same at all. <laughs> I think the most, as it stands at the moment with the, the, you know, the information that we have and without knowing exactly sort of what Mercedes is, is going to do in sort of the, the, the medium term, the most likely seems to be a, a forced reunion with Renault because, because to all, because in response to all of the speculation about the future of Mercedes Grand Prix as a team, Mercedes is adamant that the works team's going nowhere. So if the works team is going nowhere, then that means that for Mercedes to supply Red Bull, they'd need to be willing to supply a direct rival and they would already be supplying four teams. So I don't think logistically and competitively, Mercedes is going to want to supply Red Bull. Um, I don't think Red Bull is going to want Ferrari because they've made a backward step and it's worse than you know sucking eggs and going back to Renault. And I don't know if if Ferrari would even supply Red Bull because, again, it's a direct rival. There's no immediate engine manufacturer on the horizon, not for several years. And unless Red Bull does a deal to take over the IP of the Honda engine or in some crazy megabucks deal takes over Sakura and, and such, which I don't think would happen anyway because Honda needs the Sakura resources and infrastructure and personnel for their automotive targets... Uh, th- then I don't think Rebel have any option. I-, I don't see any obvious option other than going back to-, to-, to Renault and it wouldn't be something that either party would be massively keen on given given the nature of their divorce, but it would give Red Bull a decent engine because the Renault does look to be a better product than the one that they abandoned in 2018 and it would give Renault the second and third teams that they they crave because they need the money and they also... it's more mileage it's it's more development time on on track so it would be a sort of marriage of convenience but with sort of in in brackets before the convenience I think (laughs) it would just be it's it's slightly difficult uh, for all all round I I do think 
the most interesting thing lies in sort of what Mercedes is willing to do because we do there's constantly speculation that the team's gonna gonna withdraw and reduce to just being an engine supplier beyond twenty one. I don't see why Mercedes would want to just be an F1 as an engine supplier because I don't see any return on investment for that. That's why Red Bull and Renault fell out because Renault felt that they never got the recognition for the good stuff and Honda can't justify staying in F1 because it's got other stuff going on. But if if Honda was getting a load out of Formula 1 by being an engine supplier, then I'm sure that decision would have been a lot harder. So there's a lot of factors around what Red Bull does next. I don't really see... I don't I don't really see like a strong outcome other than going back to Renault. Well, we can be sure that Red Bull will have been working quite hard behind the scenes for contingency plans. Obviously, as you said, Scott, they had an inkling this was coming. And even if they didn't know it was coming, a team of that, the, the leadership there will have always had a bit of a fallback plan in, in mind. But yeah, it's one of those situations where there's not many options open and available to them. Yeah, the, the one I suggested, the, the getting a Honda continuation engine, I imagine everything has its price, but I imagine even for Red Bull, that, that could well be prohibitively expensive. And yeah, they'd probably need to get some IP from Honda if they wanted to do their own thing. So it's really complicated. But I must admit, if I was them going back to Renault, it's very much a holding pattern, isn't it, for a team that's felt like it's been in a holding pattern ever since the hybrid era started. How do you see it, Mark? Do you think there's a there's a clever way for Red Bull to get out of this, or do you think they're just going to end up having to take Renault because it's the only practical option. Yeah, there's not an obvious way, is there? Um, I don't know. I think um, if if Mercedes was an engine supplier um, only, yeah, it would be an obvious fix to that solution. Um, but no, yeah, I agree. The, the Renault looks the from, from here, from the distance of here to then, um, the Renault one looks the, the obvious solution. And it not not a bad solution either. It's it's actually um, pretty competitive this this year. Well, last year last year more so. Um, and it's it, it it it's a much better engine. It's a much better Renault engine than they had at any other time in the um, the hybrid era. Yeah, that's certainly true. I, I guess it comes down to that choice, doesn't it? Because while teams always want to be kind of the number one team and. Effectively, that's been Red Bull's. Oh, uh, they're the sole su- supplied team, really, because AlphaTauri is the, is the sister team, obviously. But as McLaren showed with Honda, that doesn't always work, and they've ended up going full circle and going back to Mercedes. And we should note, Red Bull has tried to get Mercedes engines in the past, so we can't completely rule that out. And some of the forces that were working against them, the, po- the political landscape has shifted a little bit in terms of of that. So you, know, you never know. I imagine there's a lot of phone calls being made by. Uh, by Christian Horner and and others though to to sort of chase this down. It's uh, this sort of situation isn't unique for a team, is it? I guess whereas once in the past you could realistically try and tempt in another manufacturer after a bit of a holding period, it, it's just so difficult and so unrealistic to expect anyone new to come in. These regs are so mature now as well. Uh, Scott, no nobody's going to no manufacturer's going to be mad enough to suddenly pop up with an engine, are they? No, otherwise they'd be in Formula One already. So I think, uh, I, I think, un- unless Formula One creates a new, um, a much more appealing engine formula uh, for a, for whenever that comes in in a few years' time, twenty five, twenty six, whatever it is, um, this is what we've got. It's these three engine manufacturers that exist now. What about Max Verstappen, uh, Mark? Obviously, he's a very ambitious driver. He's kept patience with with Red Bull, but he's always attracted interest from other teams. Do you think this 
means that, that Red Bull's hold on him, even though they've got him under contract to 2023, is a little bit more tenuous, perhaps, than it otherwise would have been? Yeah, we don't know what the clauses are, obviously. One of the clauses might be that it's a factory engine. Um, it's quite. It's not an uncommon clause. So, yeah, I don't think it's um, a given that he, he, he serves his time until the end of that contract. Um, yeah, he, he, him and his father, Jos, are, are going to be looking around very very carefully, I would think. Um, and I think this would definitely have, um, have a bearing on um, on their thinking. Um, that doesn't mean that he's, he's looking to leave, but um, they will be looking at what might be the, the possible fallout of this um, and, and considering it very carefully. Yeah, well, it would make sense for him to continue there next year. And we don't know, it, I don't think there's any anything that can really change that unless something bizarre happens with Mercedes. You never know anything can happen when there's enough money involved. But yeah, certainly he's going to need to be, he'll, he'll be looking at thinking he needs to be in a title challenging car in 22, whatever happens. And Red Bull Renault, uh, Red Bull Honda rather, was a credible possibility for that. Red Bull Renault, we can't rule it out, but it's probably made Red Bull slightly less appealing for him. So, interesting situation. This is what happens, isn't it, though, Scott, when you have driver a driver of this calibre? Because basically, I think if you were going to sign a driver in Formula 1, Verstappen's one of the first names on your list. He's up there with Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton obviously has a disadvantage that he's uh, a lot older and he's he's got more of his F1 career behind him than ahead of him, because not even he can defeat time. So... And if anybody thinks the door's even fractionally ajar, they're going to be hammering it down to try and get Verstappen on board, aren't they? Yeah, I've always felt that um, Verstappen sort of feels destined to be the post-Hamilton man at Mercedes, Team Brackley, whatever it is, whenever that happens. Um, and all this does is reinforce that view for me. I think it's more likely than ever now. Um, I definitely think that uh, an engine is not the only thing that Red Bull now stands to lose from this massive news. And I also just think how unfortunate it is at the moment that we've got two absolute stunning young drivers in Formula One now, in Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen, who could be fighting for titles, could be having this amazing generational shift of a, a fight with Hamilton. And one of them's got a crap engine and the other one's about to have no engine. Yeah, that's that's not going to make life uh easy it's a shame because actually i'd like to see and i think he'd like it as well i'd like to see lewis hamilton being able to take leclerc and verstappen on on equal terms or relatively equal terms that'd be fantastic to see wouldn't it and i think i think he's perfectly perfectly up to doing doing that and still winning it but it's so frustrating how often these generational battles we miss out on more of them than we actually get looking over history for various uh reasons but yeah it's a shame that the that we've not only got the team competitiveness situation that's having impact, but the engine uh, package impact on it, particularly with Ferrari struggling, is is really it's, it's slightly spoiling F one at the moment, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, and um, it's a function of the a the complexity of the the formula and 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 b the um, the, the constraints that were put upon um, development and see the uh, interpretation that Ferrari were making of the technical regulations last year that um, has subsequently been um, stamped out. So, yeah, we, we're sort of frozen ourselves into a, an uncompetitive field, which is unfortunate. Um, and I think we may have to be doing some readjusting of that um, looking into the future. Yeah, well, I, I imagine Verstappen's best option now is just sort of sit tight and see what play what things play out he'll be very very aware of what red bull are, are trying to do for their 
long-term uh, plan now. So he's going to have a competitive car next year, whatever happens. Honda, of course, we should stress, they're talking about, well, new engine next year. They're really going to push on and try and fight for that championship next year. So, I mean, that's quite fanciful given that there are limitations on, on next season. It's kind of 2020 part two, ultimately. But I think it does it does mean Honda's not just going to sort of park everything and just see how it's time over the next uh, season and a half. So that's not a bad place to be. But it's difficult, isn't it? Because if you had a completely free choice as a driver now and you said, right, what car would you like to be sitting in for, should we say, the mid-2020s? You just don't really know, do you? It, it's actually really hard to tell. All you could really do is say, well, going to Brackley's, looking like it'll be a good thing but there's all sorts of rumors about what's going on there and you know it, it's not a, a simple and, and straightforward choice so probably best got to sit tight isn't it probably yeah although by the time we get into the mid to late 2020s we'll be on the right sort of time scale based uh based on recent activity for honda to be coming back into f1 in some way presumably having given uh, the opportunity for Red Bull to um, suddenly win a load of titles with another engine manufacturer and then Honda has to try and find a third different way to come into F1 having left it in terrible circumstances. It is at least um, going to have a crack at uh, bowing out on a high next year. I was trying. I was thinking earlier actually when we were starting this podcast and sort of talking about the journey that Honda's been on, it's, um, it's weird that having the, 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 when they left F1 the last time, they created the conditions for the birth of the team that they can't beat this time. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's often twists of fate like that. The, the particular Honda withdrawal one is uh, perhaps the most extreme of them. That that kind of laid the foundations for everything that's happened in Formula One in the past seven or eight years, hasn't it? Isn't it one of those curiosities? Yeah, who knows? Honda may be back one day. Like I said, this is the fourth time they've they've pulled out, but uh, yeah, <laughs> whether, whether they'll be back quite on that timeline, who? Uh, who knows? But I think they still do do like Formula One, certainly. But yeah, I think we just have to wait and see how, how this all shakes out and just hope that maybe there can be a big enough step next year from Red Bull to fight for the championship because that's what we'd like to see and Ferrari can turn things around. Um, finally, we should actually reflect a little bit on the Honda project, Mark, because it's come a long way, hasn't it? Because Honda was a laughing stock with McLaren, wasn't it? All this GP2 engine shrieking from uh, Fernando Alonso. And it then achieved respectability and now success with winning races with Red Bull and Alpha Tauri. And although we're never going to quite see it reach its peak, I suspect, it's still a remarkable turnaround and testament to Honda that they managed to do this, given how it all started. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they came in, they, they were almost forced to come in a year before they were ready, which, and they were already a year later than everyone else. So effectively, their, their program was two years behind those that they were competing against. And in the early stages, uh, you know, the first year of the, the hybrid formula, the Ferrari was a hopeless engine, the Renault was a hopeless engine. Um, so you, you were seeing even you, the equivalent of the prototypes of those engines racing against uh, fully developed engines. So it didn't look good. And their initial philosophy with the size zero was to miniaturize everything and have the turbos in the middle of the V. Um, that was fundamentally the, the, the wrong direction because as the, um, the efficiencies improved, it, it became necessary to have competitive power to increase the size of the turbos um, so that the, the, the size zero is no longer appropriate. You couldn't fit them in between the Vs. So they then... In the third year, they actually 
redid the whole thing from scratch almost and adopted the, the Mercedes principle of a split turbo, so a compressor at one end and the turbine at the other. Um, and that was the, the, the correct move, but it was um, the, the first year of that, 20, 2018, this was the RA618 engine. Um, it was limited by a problem with its MGUH, which couldn't um, turn fast enough without causing horrific vibrations. And as it's a compounding engine, every problem in one area just compounds everywhere else as well. So that was hopeless. Um, and it wasn't really until the um, 20, uh, 20, sorry, that was a 2017 engine I was talking about, the 2018 engine um, that went in the Toro Rosso that it really started to um, show what its potential. And that was the, the with the correct, um, the, the, the layout of the, the previous year's engine, but with the, the, the problem solved on the vibrations. And you really started seeing the potential of the, the thing for the first time then. And of course, uh, stick it in a Red Bull and it was winning races and that's, that's where we are now. So yeah, it's it, it's been um, a very very uh, mm, I, I guess troubled initially troubled, but it was the the fact that they got through so many um, technical blockages and conquered them and came out the other end with a you know they're now you know a, a fully competitive power unit. So yeah, it, it it's been. It's what you would have expected Honda to do, actually. Um, you wouldn't have expected them to have been beaten by it. Uh, they're they're, they're a, um, an engineer, very much an engineering-led company and very very proud of that heritage. And it's still at the core of what they're trying to do next. It's it's an engineering challenge. So, yeah, I think um, it's, it's full respect to them, but it would have been surprising if they'd um, not been able to achieve success. Yeah, well, McLaren said they always expected Honda to be successful i just didn't think they could afford to wait for them to to do it whether that decision in retrospect was the right one who knows but at the time it did look uh, very sensible but scott just looking at where we are now obviously one of the stories of this season is that red bull hasn't been able to take the fight to mercedes how much of that do you think is down to honda how much of it's down to the the chassis side sh- should we say because obviously huge progress has been made there and they've continued to chip away at things in in recent times haven't they at honda yeah, they have. Um, I I don't want to be boring and say it's probably 50-50, um, but you can see that a chunk of their advantage is just in the fact that the car is not as sweet handling as it needs to be all the time. It has windows of peak performance, like the second stint in the Russian Grand Prix, for example, Verstappen was, um, was almost identical on average lap time to, to Bottas, and if you took their 15 fastest laps from the Grand Prix, Verstappen was was slightly faster um and then you have uh the the race at silverstone the second silverstone grand prix this year where in in those conditions there was just this beautiful window of performance from the rb16 and so verstappen won on merit uh and without without a good engine that wouldn't be possible um there's a bit of a suggestion in italy that honda's been the worst hit by this qualifying mode uh, technical directive mid-season uh, but that doesn't really stack up when you think when you look at um, Red Bull at Mugello and Sochi was comfortably the closest that they've been to Mercedes in qualifying all season and it was quite a chunk better than it had been in the preceding races so I don't really think that stacks up so I, I think it's missing 
it only needs to be missing a, a tenth or two on on the straights in pure performance and a tenth or two in the corners, and then you, that that's where the deficit is. That that is how far Red Bull is behind at the moment, and it's just because this is such a complex engine formula, and it's it's up against an absolute juggernaut in Mercedes. And what we need to remember is Mercedes have been chipping away and chipping away and chipping away at this for six seasons, seven seasons on track, but actually eight or nine years in development terms. And Honda came into this, as Mark said, um, un- underbaked because it came in earlier than it should have done. It was late to the party anyway, so it was doing less development work. And it's had to fundamentally change its design since then. So really, this has been a 2017 onwards process with a team that doesn't always get its car right so why should we expect the red bull honda package to be as good as the mercedes package i think they've done a great job about performing ferrari which i think they've done on merit now two seasons in a row as a, as a package because ferrari was ahead of red bull at times last season but only in very controversial circumstances so i think they've actually done a really good job they're just it's one of those situations where a little bit like valtteri bottas being in mercedes at the same time as lewis hamilton or um, Fernando Alonso being at Ferrari at the same time Sebastian Vettel and, and Red Bull were a thing if you removed Mercedes from the picture I bet that Red Bull Honda combination would look incredible at the moment smashing the rest of the, the grid well clear of what Ferrari's capable of managing legally so it would be brilliant it would look fantastic it's just you're up against this absolute ridiculous sport changing era defining combination of car and engine that just makes what Honda's done look just not quite as special now so all mercedes's fault again just too damn good <laughs> and that's that's the offhand they're doing exactly what they should be doing so uh, i think I, mean, I guess the last thing is does does anybody think that we could see a bit of an upset next year and that red bull could be close enough or do we think it'll be more of the same the odd win here and there otherwise leading the the rest of the mid of the the, the gigantic mid-pack it'd be nice and I, I wouldn't say it's impossible but given that we're fundamentally stuck with um 2020 cars and very limited development on all sorts of things, including the power units. I think um, it would be be a bit of a be a nice surprise, but it would be a surprise. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I think they might. I think they'll get closer. Um, so I would maybe I would up the amount that Verstappen's sniping for wins. Um, and in that regard, maybe he could maybe he could just mount that incredible title challenge. Maybe. Lewis Hamilton, if he does stay at Mercedes as expected, he'll just be slightly blunted because he'll have that Schumacher equal in seventh title and he'll have the outright win record. Maybe he'll just have that edge of motivation last and Verstappen can just pick off off points, pick off points, pick off points here and there and maybe sort of put something together. But I'd be surprised. I think it'll be be a success if Honda bows out of its most successful season in Formula One. That's what I think they should be aiming for next year. More wins than they've had in the season before and at least a half-decent run at the championship. Yeah, that's probably the peak it's going to be. Unfortunately, sometimes the answer to those questions is not the uh, the exciting one that, that we want. Uh, just before we go, we should say we've got the German... No, it's not the German Grand Prix, is it? We've got the Eiffel Grand Prix. I'm going to call it the Eiffel Rennen in, uh, in tribute to that uh, historic race at the Nürburgring this weekend. Mark, excited about F1 being back at the, the Nürburgring, even if it isn't uh, uh, the big one? Yeah, it's nice to go, that it's gone back there. I'm, I'm enjoying the mix of circuits this year, I must say. It's, uh, and I'm look, looking forward to even more probably to, uh, to going back to Imola. And um, yeah, the, the the venues are great. It, it, it's um, if it had been a 
a normal season with with this uh, with this mix of circuits. It would have been fantastic. Yeah, the, the variety of circuits has been hugely uh, uh, interesting. I think we're on a run of four, aren't we? That are that are new, well, well new or returning, we should say, with Istanbul Park as well, Imola, Algarve. It's uh, it's creating some uh, some extra challenges. But Nurburgring's just got that history behind it as well, which is why I'm going to keep calling it the Eiffel Run and just to. Uh, just to amuse myself, and of course, this this time, Scott, you're you're the Honda expert, so this this is the time for for Red Bull to have one of their wins, isn't it? It's, it's there's every chance it's going to be wet, and of course, we know how mediocre Lewis Hamilton is in the wet, so I never know that could create an opportunity. <laughs> Slightly tongue in cheek suggestion <laughs> there. Ed, this is uh, podcasts are not very good for visual imagery, imagery, but I think even the um, even our podcast listeners can literally see you clutching at Ed Straws there. So that's. Uh, no, I think uh, I think you know maybe some Verstappen wet weather heroics could uh, could could be interesting. I think the main, the I think the important thing now is like this season is going to be this season. Next year, it's going to be difficult because we have no idea what's going to happen with the pandemic. There has to be a Japanese Grand Prix next year. It would be really really sad if Honda has to bow out of F one and it doesn't get to go back to Suzuka one last time. Yeah, well, with a little bit of luck, that will uh, happen. Although. Things are very, very uncertain at the moment, as I'm sure everyone will have been following the news. So let's just hope, yeah, tomorrow can be the kind of normal-ish season that people are talking about in terms of the uh, the overall shape of the calendar. But I think uh, it's going to be a slightly movable feast again, uh, unfortunately, although hopefully not quite the disruption of this season. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes, for your insights on the Honda bombshell. Obviously, we will be turning our attention to the Eiffel Renan, I'm going to keep calling it that. You can look up why I keep calling it that uh, if you uh, if you care, which you probably don't. Uh, obviously, on the race.com website, and don't forget the hyphen, there's loads of stuff about the, the Honda Fallout. So if you want to read more there, there's pieces from all of us uh, there and our verdicts on the situation and plenty more to come. And do head to our YouTube channel. That's called The Race, where there's plenty of videos there. I did recently did a video about some mid-season rule changes in the history of Formula One. Plus, of course, we're tackling Honda there. And if you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe and maybe give us a review view and also check out some of our other podcasts including bring back v10s and the gary anderson f1 show we'll be back soon with all the coverage from the eiffel renan (laughs) 